Hey, everyone. Would you get me a stand? Okay, so last time I stood up here to preach before you all, my wife was sitting on that row over there, and she was having contractions. And so now we have someone to introduce to you. So, if you will look to the back, there's Miranda with our little girl, Adeline. <laughs> She's asleep in the car seat there. She's really tiny, so I know it's hard to see her, but uh, this, oh, thank you. This will be Adeline's first sermon. No, 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 her second sermon. Uh, I think this is mine. I drunk less, drunk more. <laughs> so, we're glad Adeline's here and that her and mom are safe and sound. And I'm glad I got through it as well, because that was something else. But here we are. Turn to uh, Acts chapter 17. A few weeks ago, I made a statement to you guys that the gospel must be preached not just to the lost, but also to Christians. The gospel must be preached also to Christians. I get this from Paul in his letter to the Romans. He writes in the opening chapter in verse 1, he writes that I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. But these people are Christians that he's writing to. He said already they have faith of international renown. People whose faith is proclaimed in all the world. But he's eager to preach the gospel to Christians. So that's what I'm going to be doing tonight. Most of you, I would assume, are Christians. So I'm preaching the gospel to you. And believe me, we need to hear the gospel right now. Acts chapter 17, I'm going to begin in verse 1. There's a number of texts we're going to be looking at. I'll be jumping around a handful of places. We're going to begin with a scene here out of Acts, the city of Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Jason was hosting them seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Let's bow together and pray. Lord God, we praise you and give you thanks that we can come before you tonight and that the message we can hear really every week is a message we call good, good news, gospel news. And I ask, Lord, I ask you, Lord, that you would demonstrate the power 
inherent in the message of the gospel itself demonstrate that power here among us tonight and shape us and alter us and excite us and thrill us over who you are. There's maybe 50, 60 of us in the room tonight, Lord. We're representing campuses where there are thousands upon thousands of students whose lives are lived in darkness, who do not know you. I pray, God, that you would burden us. Burden us as we are so excited about the goodness of the news. Burden us to proclaim it, to share it, to live it out and to enact it in dark places. Make our feet shed with the good news of the gospel of peace. Make our feet swift, Lord, to run to proclaim it. Open our ears, open our hearts. Pay close attention and concentrate on what you have to say to us tonight. In your holy name we pray, amen. The accusation in Thessalonica is this. These men have turned the world upside down. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. I once asked my son, my son Hayden, what he would do if he were Jesus when those soldiers were nailing him to the cross. What would you do, Hayden, if that was you and you were getting nailed to the cross and you were Jesus, you had all that power? I would come down from that cross and I would get those mean guys and I would put them on a cross. That's what he said. The other day I was talking with my daughter Bryn. She's seven years old. She rides the bus after in the afternoons and she told me about the bully on the bus. We don't know his name. So he goes by in our house, the bully on the bus. This 11-year-old punk kid who likes to shove past her in line and heckle other kids. and Really actually intimidates her, I think, a bit. When she mentioned him, I told her, well, you know, sweetheart, we should start praying for him, shouldn't we? <laughs> pray for him? <laughs> Dad, why should we pray for him? He's a bully. Yes, I know, sweetheart. It doesn't make sense. Because the gospel turns the world upside down. It takes that which is up, it brings it down. That which is down, it brings it up. Jesus turns everything on its head. He does this, doesn't he? Last night I was explaining the gospel to Bren. And I told her, you know, the gospel is, is an announcement. Like the announcements we get every morning in school on the intercom? Well, sort of. Sort of. The gospel is an announcement. The announcement that just supersedes all other announcements. Sound the alarms. Let the sirens roar. Ring all the bells you have. There's a messenger out on the street. Hear ye, hear ye. Listen what he's got to say. He's crying out the message that we all should be poised and desperate to hear the good news. That every fiber of our being is quivering and shaking to finally hear the gospel is the royal pronouncement that there is another king, Jesus, through whom God will bring his kingdom and make all things new. The world's going upside down with the message of the gospel. So the gospel pronounces, it exclaims, and it speaks. Tonight, what we're going to do throughout the message is look at three areas, three spheres or realms in which the gospel speaks. And the first sphere is the personal sphere, okay? The gospel has something to say to you 
personally. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. The gospel has something to say to you and me directly in a personal, individual way. Colossians chapter 2. And don't be mistaken, the gospel wants to turn your life upside down, okay? The gospel will wreak beautiful havoc in your lives. A few weeks ago, we worked through this really difficult passage in Romans. Romans chapter 6, many of you guys were, were gone, it was midterms. There was this big UAB game, and, and, and many of you who are here, I, I know you were, you were falling asleep during the sermon, bless your dear hearts. But fret not if that was you, because fortuitously, which is a fine word, fortunately for you, our passage in Colossians provides a chance for review, okay? Remember, we talked about being co-crucified with Christ, co-resurrected with Christ. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 11. In him, in Jesus, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He took our record of debt, nailing it to the cross. Last night when Brenda and I were talking about the gospel, she told me that today she was going to be keeping a chart in her head, she said. A chart. And on one side of the chart would be all the good deeds she had done. And the other side of the chart would be all the bad deeds she charted. She wanted to keep up with them as an experiment of sort, just to see if the good ones would outweigh the bad ones, okay? We read in Colossians about a metaphorical list that is charted out, charted out all of our bad deeds my version here the esv is called a record of debt the chart well it's off the charts isn't it our debts we have this lengthy record of it a long detailed ledger of our filthy, stinking sins against God. We were in the red, if you're an accountant in the room. We were past due. We had no means whatsoever at our disposal for repayments. The record of debt was weighing us down, crushing us under its weight, and then God took it from us, and with a Roman mallet, and with a Roman spike, nailed it into the cross of His Son. We were dead in our trespasses, we read. But Jesus took us, invited us into His death in order that He might take us up in His resurrection. The Gospel speaks to you personally about this record of debt. It speaks to this personal filth and death and cries out in its power to you, Live! Come alive! 
that shouts to those who are dead and makes them alive together with Jesus. That's turning a life upside down. Taking that which is dead and making it alive. I once was lost, but now I'm found upside down. Made alive together with Jesus in our sin, as the hymn goes. Not the part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. The gospel addresses us in this personal sphere of our individual lives, saying that though you were dead, you're now alive and the record of debt, it's gone. Hallelujah. But the gospel is bigger than this. In our self-absorbed preaching, in our self-absorbed hearing of sermons and reading of Scripture, we know very little of what the Gospel says beyond what it says to us personally, beyond what it says to me. We know very little of what the Gospel says about anything else except what it says to us personally. So we're going to now look at two realms the gospel also addresses. It addresses us personally. It also addresses the world socially or sociologically. All right? Have you ever heard this? Sometimes you hear the social gospel brought up, and it's usually discussed as a bad thing. But there is a sociological dimension to the gospel. Gospel speaks to society to turn it upside down. There's a hymn that Mary, the mother of our Lord, sings in Luke chapter 2. We call this the Magnificat. Listen to the theme of reversal. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty-handed. Think about Jesus in Luke chapter 4, standing in his hometown synagogue, reading from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news, gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the sabbatical year when all the debts would be released and the poor would be freed. Remember when He preached such backwards, upside-down, sociological nonsense like this on Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you who are poor, and woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who are hungry, woe to you who are full. Blessed are you who weep, woe to you who laugh. The gospel is not just concerned with you and me personally as individuals. The gospel is concerned with something broader than that. It's concerned with creating a new society. The gospel is speaking into this world to forge a new humanity that is upside down when compared to what's going on in the world. And this new humanity we call church. We're to be an upside down sociological phenomenon in the world. Hold your spot in Colossians. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. All right, Galatians 2. We almost never talk about this, this sociological dimension to the gospel. It wasn't just critical for Jesus. Central to Paul's preaching the gospel are these ethnic and socioeconomic issues. 
the epistle of Romans, that's where we get Paul's clearest and most sustained presentation of the gospel. Okay, and the first 11 chapters of Romans is devoted to explaining how Gentiles and Jews, people of different ethnicities, are to form together a multiracial, multi-ethnic community of faith centered on Christ. Read Romans. You think about the theme theme justification of faith, okay? Justification by faith. It It says a lot about us being personally cleansed of sin. It is also saying a lot about forging a new humanity made of Gentile and Jew together. In this letter to uh, the Galatians, Paul is outraged. He's incensed because the Galatian believers are failing to embrace the social aspect of the gospel. Jews are forcing Judaism on the Gentiles, forcing their own ethnic distinctives onto the Gentiles in the name of Jesus. Paul says this is a different gospel. And he also says that if anyone preaches a different gospel to you, let him be accursed. I added extra um, emphasis on Ed because I like it sounds better. Accursed. Okay, let's read Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. This is part of Paul's personal testimony. But when Cephas, now who's Cephas? Anybody know that? That's Peter, right? When Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That's Joel's Buzz, Joel Busby's favorite part about this passage, I think. I opposed him to his face. Picture this happening, Paul and Peter, because he stood condemned. For before certain men from James, he was eating, I'm sorry, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, these Palestinian Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We tend to idealize the early church, don't we? You've got to be careful with that. They had their problems, they had their conflicts, and here we see the two most historically famous apostles in this terse confrontation with each other in the city of Antioch. It wasn't pretty. Peter changed his seat at the supper table. Peter left one group of friends to join an elite little clique on the other side of the calf. This ever happened in this moment. Sharing meals in the ancient world, this, this, this was a socially binding experience to share a meal with someone. But Peter withdrew himself from the Gentiles to eat exclusively with his own ethnic group, with these Jews, when these Palestinian Christians showed up for a visit. Look at verse 14. Paul writes that Peter's little social maneuvering, that this conduct of drawing racial lines at the table was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It was compromising the gospel in some way. The gospel is speaking to you personally, but it's also speaking to this world and our society socially, sociologically, redefining who we sit with for lunch, who we hang out with in the calf, who we invite over to our dorm room, who we have over to our houses. The gospel is bringing us into a new sphere of relationships in which the pecking order 
pillars are demolished and you have pecking worms. You really do. The gospel is creating this new humanity in the corporate church that's turning the world's social order upside down because, this is from 1 Corinthians 12, the parts of the body, the church, that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, world upside down. When Paul preached the gospel, he wasn't just delivering a message of good news about your personal sins. He was seeking to form communities of faith that turned society upside down. Little communities in which there was neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Communities of both circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians and Scythians. Because for you were all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel wants to change everything socially. All right? It speaks to you personally. It speaks to us sociologically. And third, the third area in which the gospel speaks its power. The gospel says something to the cosmic realm. The realm of spiritual forces and power. The realm of personified entities like death and sin. Turn back to our Colossians passage. I'm going to reread that last verse there, verse 15. Colossians 2, verse 15. After Paul has spoken of what has happened to us personally through the work of Christ, a record of debt being removed, he also says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Rulers and authorities. Principalities and powers. These are terms, they're found in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians. These are terms that are usually referring to evil Demonic forces. The gospel doesn't just speak forth. Into your personal life. Into the global society. The global makeup of, of the world. It also speaks into the cosmic sphere. And says something to it. It's this royal pronouncement that. There is another king. Jesus is being pronounced as a destructive word into the heavenly realm, into the cosmic realm. We see this in Ephesians 6, where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Guys, these forces are out there, alive and well and very. Maybe even at work in your own life. Maybe even tonight at work in this room a bit. Manipulating us. Damaging us. Deceiving us. There are these foul, sinister powers. I want to trick you. Twist you up. I've seen them at work very recently. But God has triumphed 
over these dark forces through Christ, putting them to open shame in you. And according to Romans 8, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because the gospel says there is another king, you rulers, authorities, and powers. Another king, Jesus. The gospel sounds forth that message into the cosmic realm. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's been many moments where I've wanted you to say amen. That was one of them. <laughs> Last week, Miranda and I watched the movie Precious. How many of you have seen it? You guys seen that? All right, well, Chase, very good. Some, all right, thanks. A few, few of you have. You should see this not because it's entertaining, not because it's uplifting, but because it is terribly disturbing. I think Christians should watch disturbing films. There's a moment in the film, well, well, first of all, you should know that uh, the story is about a teenage girl whose life has just been absolutely wrecked, wrecked by overwhelmingly powerful forces in her life personally, She's been wrecked by these oppressive sociological structures that are over her and around her. If this story were real to life, I would also affirm that there are demonic forces affecting her. Really, the story is portraying, portraying influences that have to be labeled as demonic. There's a moment in the film when this teenage girl is there before her social worker. And she says something, she stands up and says... You can't handle me, Miss Weiss. I am too much for you. My issues, too big for you. And she leaves the welfare office. She found her situation too dark, too desperate for the government's welfare system. It wouldn't suffice for her. It wasn't big enough for her problems. And it leads me, that scene leads me to ask the question, just like the question I was asking after the earthquake in Haiti, is our gospel really big enough is the gospel i preach strong enough to speak not only to personal trials but to sociological evils and to cosmic powers is my gospel that big because if my gospel cannot make sense in the ears of abducted children if the gospel i preach cannot make sense in the ears of rape victims or earthquake victims or to those who are oppressed by a demonic power then it's not worth preaching from this climate-controlled little fellowship hall we're sitting in tonight. But of course our gospel is big enough. No matter your pain, personally, no matter your oppression, no matter the depth and height of your guilt, no matter your suffering, the gospel is big enough to speak to you in that personal way, big enough to reshape us sociologically and strong enough to cry out into the cosmic realm, oh death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Our gospel is big enough. One final word to make is this. 
the gospel announces a future reality for the present realm. This is really tough to understand, and it's part of what I was talking about a few weeks ago in Romans 6. Critical to understanding the gospel is understanding eschatology, the end times, okay? And a key phrase for you to remember is this, already, but not yet. It's happening. It's underway, but the full completion of it is yet to come. There is another King Jesus. It's a message that turns the world upside down, but the kingship of Jesus is being contested right now in our current world, current status. There's tension between what, between what the gospel announces and what is actually taking place. But the gospel's message is that it's on the way. It is forth. Coming. It's taking place now, but not finished yet. We are being set free personally, but its completion comes when Jesus comes back. A new humanity is being reforged in the church, but consummation of that work comes when Jesus comes back. Demonic forces are being stripped of their powers, but their final debasement awaits for when Jesus comes back. Paul tells us that at one point, we will be resurrected from the dead. Then, he says, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's underway. It's happening. So the gospel tells us that with the cross, with the empty tomb and exaltation of Christ, God added a new clock to his shelf. And it's a clock ticking backwards he pushed start on the clock it's ticking backwards because it's ticking a countdown a countdown that's now underway until all things wrong are made right do you hear the glorious sound of the backwards ticking of this countdown 10 9 8 to your personal sins and failures the gospel cries out that you are forgiven, that your record of debt is paid, that the days of your temptations are numbered. Seven, six, five, to this fractured and disjointed, oppressive society that we live in that has all these structures that lock up the poor and more poverty that are spawning genocide and racism and gossip and affairs. To those structures, the gospel says, not much longer to death, to Satan, to sin, to all those wicked forces that are clutching after us and are lying to us and trying to mess us up and trick us. The gospel says to them, not much longer until two, one. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The gospel is turning the world 
upside down until the world gets remade. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for this message, for this word, for the message of your gospel, that there is another King Jesus, and for the fact that you have given us grace to know this King Jesus, we say thanks, and we ask for a greater depth of gratitude to be able to express it appropriately. And give us grace now, Lord Jesus, to sing to you and worship you as this King who's come to make all things new. Lord, tonight for those who might very possibly be in the room and have yet to hear the personal pronouncement of the gospel about their sins in their life, God, I pray. I pray that among us we would know the great power of the gospel in saving sinners and bringing them grace. And Lord Jesus, to those of us, well, all of us, Lord, to all of us in the room, who are part of a failed and sinful system that keeps the poor low and the rich high. God, push us into Haiti. Push us into these areas north of Birmingham and the west side and out beyond Crestwood. Push us into these places, Lord Jesus, where it's dark. Let our feet be swift to go there. And Lord, to those of us who might have the claws of evil powers stuck in our minds or in our hearts. God, speak your gospel to those forces and bring freedom and deliverance. This is our prayer. Hear us now as we worship. It's in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen.